We just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come before you and learn from your word. We ask that you guide and lead us as we look at this chapter in Matthew and that you will, your Holy Spirit will teach us what you would have us to learn. And we just thank you for in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 19. And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and came into the coast of Judea beyond Jordan and great multitudes followed him and he healed them there. And the Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put his wife away for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Therefore they are no more two, but one flesh. What the... What, it, what therefore God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Then they said unto them, Why did Moses command to give a writing of divorcement to, her, to put her away? And he said unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you that, unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife except for fornication, and shall marry another, commits adultery. And whosoever marries her which is put away, Death commit adultery. So we're going to stop there because we've got quite a bit <laughs> just in these few sentences. Uh, the very first verse says, And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these sayings, what f- sayings was that? Well, we've been studying in the past <laughs> chapter. He's, talk- he's given lessons on who's the, who will be the greatest in heaven, how to enter into heaven, how to fix problems between brothers uh, and, and individuals, and, and forgiveness. So we, the whole things that we've been spending a couple weeks on you know, after he'd finished this teachings with them. And you think about this, you know, I can, I wonder what it really would have been like to have been sitting at Jesus' feet and hearing him teach all the time. You know, just to, how simple things were going. And, you know, good teachers will do this. Good parenting is done this way. You're always teaching. You're always taking whatever's going on and using it to teach. And just imagine Jesus, the greatest teacher that ever, ever was there, being able to teach you in just about every situation. And I try to do that myself. I try to teach people when I'm with them and talk with them. I want, to, I want them to learn. I want them to be able to grow biblically, you know, just in general oftentimes, just dropping little lessons here, little lessons here. Sometimes it's not even done on purpose. It's just it becomes who you are. And this is what they had for Jesus. And it says, and they came from, from Galilee. They departed Galilee and came into the coast of Judea. And both of these are regions. And this trip that they're talking about, it kind of makes it sound like it was such a quick trip. This is a 60 to 90 mile trip, depending on where in Galilee they start and where in Judea they stop. And it could be as much as 110 or 120 if they went all the way from the top of Galilee down to the Dead Sea. So we're talking a pretty good trip. And we read this and it sounds like, well, they just took off and then they were there. Uh, we're talking 60 to 90 miles, so it's at least a three to three to five day trip that they're they're making. All right, and it says a great multitude followed him, and he healed them. And I like to bring these kind of points out because so often when we're reading the scripture, we read it in, in today's thought processes, and a trip from Galilee to Judea in in this day and age would just be you know 
hour, hour and a half. Uh, you just get on your car and and drive down the highway down along you know along the river and you know even if, even at, even at a slow speed of 35 or 40, you're still only talking three hours to get there and and they're talking you know days. And we just read it and say, oh okay, he left there and he got there. And we don't really think about the actual that they walked this distance. And, uh, and normal people walking in that day got you know, a good 20 miles uh, if they stick, stuck to the roads, which they would have been on the road. So probably 20 miles a day, but it took several days to get this trip that we just think of as, oh, they just did, they just did it. All right, so we have a, a, in those two verses, we're going to jump between three to five days. And apparently there was a whole multitude of people, so I would say they probably weren't even getting 20 miles a day with a whole multitude following after him. You know, probably only about 10 miles a day or something. Because the larger your group, the less distance you would have traveled. The caravans would travel 10 to 15 miles a day. Uh, a person just walking on their own could easily do 20, 25 miles in a day. Uh, so we've got this time period. And in verse 3 we see, And the Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put his wife away for every cause? And this word for tempting literally means to, they were trying to for, uh, get him into a hard place. They were trying to get him to forsake something and to trip up. And what they have set up is during Jesus' day, there were two schools of thought being taught by different rabbinical schools. The school of Hillel, uh, the rabbi Hillel taught that a man could divorce his wife for literally any reason at all. Okay, and when he meant literally any reason, you know, she burnt the dinner, he could divorce her. She, you know, uh, started getting uh, fat, he could divorce her. He just didn't like her all of a sudden, you know, he could divorce her. And that was the school of Hillel. All right, and this is what they're quoting. They're quoting Hillel. Okay. Huh? Gamaliel taught, got, taught Paul. The other school of thought is Shammai. And he says that the only right way to divorce is because of adultery, which is biblical. And so they've got Jesus where they think he's between a rock and a hard place. You know, whichever, whichever answer he gives, he's going to side with one school or the other. And the other rabbi is going to be upset that, you know, this other leader is, you know, taken aside. So they think they've got him. You know, he's going to get in trouble with one group or another. And, you know, this is the way these traps are set up for Jesus. You know, no matter what he picks, he's going to make somebody mad. Um, we see Daniel going through the same thing when, the, when he's under Darius and the, and the leaders go say, we can't find anything wrong with him. We're just going to make it illegal to pray for, for 30 days. You know, and they figured they had him. Okay, if he prays, then he's violating the king's order. If he doesn't pray, then we got him anyway because he's going to He's telling everybody that his God isn't as, you know, as powerful and, and he's not trusting his God. So they think they've got Daniel either way. And Daniel goes ahead and prays because he trusts in his God to protect him. You know, so here we see Jesus being presented this. Which school, which school of rabbis are you going to agree with, uh, Rabbi Jesus? Uh, you're going to get in trouble with one of the two. One of the two of them is not going to be happy with you. And the Pharisees themselves were split on this issue. Yeah, those that were on either side of it. So this was going to get the Pharisees upset with him. And, you know, Jesus 
knowing what happens, and he, and he goes back and he quotes scripture. He quotes scriptures to them. And he, say, and he answered them in verse 4, Have you not read? Now, this is kind of an interesting thing, because he, he says this to the, the scribes and Pharisees quite often. Have you not read? Now, you've got to remember who the scribes and Pharisees are. They are the leaders. They are the spiritual leaders that are supposed to be knowing the scriptures. But, you know, they did not really read the scriptures that often. You know, which surprises us to find that they read the rabbis' teachings about the scriptures for the most part. That's what they studied. Now, many of them had, you know, they had at some point read the Pentateuch. But for the most part, they read what the rabbis, other rabbis had said and took sides with the other rabbis. And the Jews, even to this day, place the writings of the rabbis above the actual scriptures. They want what's said about it. And it's kind of like in, in our country, most constitutional lawyers who have been trained to be lawyers in the Constitution, many of them have never read the Constitution in their life. They are experts in the Constitution and they have not read the Constitution. What they have read are all the opinions that the courts have given on the Constitution. And many of them have never read it. Which makes you wonder sometimes when they say, well, the Constitution says such and so. Well, have you ever read the Constitution? It's nowhere in the Constitution. And it's kind of an amazing thing that people who are experts on the Constitution don't read the Constitution. They read the other experts on the Constitution and, and what they say about it. And same thing with lawyers nowadays. They don't read the law. They read the case law about the law. They don't really learn the law. They learn this is what this judge, this jury, this... This lawyer, this person said about the law. Case study. Yeah. yeah, case study is what it is. And, and most lawyers now do not study law. They do not study the Constitution. They study the cases of the law. That's the fault of the people that teach them. That comes literally from the 1850s when Harvard put a president in charge of the law school that believed in evolution and applied evolution to law. The president of the law school, I don't remember his name, of the law school. And they changed it from actually learning law to learning case law. You know, when we think about this, evolutionary theory has changed everything in our world. Everything. And it's not even valid, and yet it's changed everything. It's changed the way we do law. It changes the way we look at the beginnings of this world. It changes the way we educate our students. Everything about what we do has been changed by evolution, the false teaching of evolution, and everything about our world has changed. We no longer build ourselves upon the law. Before 1850, all laws were based upon God's word and his, and his truth in America. And it was, you based it on law. Many lawyers would study their, their instructors, and because they quoted so much scripture in their law books, there were many of them that got, became Christians by reading, trying to become a lawyer. You know, and that's not what happens in our day and age now. You know, most lawyers get so far away from scripture, you know, and yet, Blackstone and all these guys that wrote the original law stuff and you know based it all and said this is where this law comes from and they would go all the way back to the scriptures to show you where law 
came from. And the laws had made sense. And nowadays, most of our laws don't make any sense. They're not based in God's absolute truth. And in the early founding of our country, many times the legislatures would ask the people, Where, what scripture are you basing your law on? Because all law had to be based upon God's word. That's what Blackstone taught them. That's what many of the original writers of, for lawyers said. All good law must have its basis in scripture. So when they would come up with a law, they would be asked, okay, what scripture is that <laughs> that you're basing that law on? Our, go our governmental system was built on scripture, a king, a judicial system, and law. And so we, we see the three divisions of government, you know, through scripture. You know, all that comes down to, and Jesus goes back and he goes, this is what God did in the beginning. He goes back to Genesis. He says, have you not read that he that made them in the beginning made them male and female? So he's going, okay, I don't care what your rabbi schools are saying. We're going to go, I'm going to take you all the way back to Genesis. All the way back to the beginning. God created male and female. That's what Jesus said. All right. So he's putting his stamp on the book of Genesis. Uh, when people go, Genesis doesn't matter. Well, Jesus thought it mattered. <laughs> this, is, this is his authority. And this is why Jesus gives him a great answer on this. If we want to be able to stand up and say, this is why we're doing what we're going to do or, or why we're making our decision, can we base it in scriptural truth? And very important for us, it's got to be based in scripture. Anything we do, anything in our life, any decision we make, when I'm, when I'm counseling people, I'll, I want to take them back to the scriptures. When I've, when I've counseled young people who say, I think I'm going to get married, and, then I, and I think God wants me to marry this person, and my first question is always, are they, are they a Christian? Well, I don't know. I think so, maybe, or no. Well, then don't even think about it. Well, I think God's telling me. No, God's not telling you because God says don't be unequally yoked. You know, do we bring God's word into decisions? Very important for us in our own life and in anybody we counsel. And if you're going to be having somebody come to you for counsel, make sure your counsel is based in God's word so that it's valid. Because too many times our counsel is not from God's word. I was talking to a young lady who was telling me that you know, she's having to file for divorce. And I'm going, well, why? And she goes, well, my husband is being unfaithful and committing adultery. I go, well, at least you have the, the one grounds that is viable for it. You know, is there any chance of reconciliation? Can you guys come together? And she says, no, he's not willing to counsel. I go, well, in your, in your case, you're in the right. You're in the right. Now, it doesn't say you have to, but it also says it's the only viable reason. And here's Jesus talking about it. And he says, verse 5, and for this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Again, he's quoting Genesis. All right. He says, God made man and woman and they shall be joined together. And this is something that is so misunderstood in our day and our age. God says they're fastened together, cleaved together, glued together. And this is important when we're talking to people who want to get married. They've got to understand marriage is for life. And when you pull two people that are, that are married or joined together apart, 
it tears apart the soul. And if you don't believe it, look at anybody who's been divorced. It's an amazing thing how somebody who's even been divorced for 30, 40, 50 years still has a bitterness in a, in a very sore spot for the person they've been divorced from. Especially if there were young children involved that kept them together for a long period of time, keeping in contact with one another. It's not as bad if they could totally separate, but there's still a torn soul. And when people join together in fornication and, and adulterous affairs, they are actually tying their souls together. That's why, that's why God has such problems with adultery and fornication and all other forms of sexual because it puts a soul joined together. And the souls are torn apart. And if you, want, if you talk to people who've had numerous <laughs> sexual partners, there's a coldness that they end up getting having toward the whole process. And it's kind of bizarre to watch because they're just, they're so torn up. Their, their soul has been ripped to shreds. And, you know, we think about this glued together. And I've talked many times about this. People who do carpentry, if, they, if you glue two boards together with really good word glue, and you try to separate those two pieces of board, the, board, the glue does not break. The boards break. You know, and you get this ragged edge on your board that destroys, it literally destroys your board. You cannot do it. Now, you probably theoretically could saw, it, saw the glue apart, but you're not going to pull them apart. And this is the picture that God uses, two people glued together. And that's what Jesus says, you've been glued together. The two have been made one. And he even goes so far as to say one flesh, one spirit, one flesh. And people who've been married for a long period of time, they do start to think alike and act alike and you know, finish one another's sentences off and really truly know what the other person's going to say or do in almost every case. You know, you're as, about as close as you can get. And he says, you become one. And then he, start, then he goes into, therefore they are no more two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together let no man put asunder. So basically he is saying to them, when God has put you together, and he's going right down to the beginning, God defined marriage, one man, one woman. He says they're to be one. And when God puts them together, don't separate it. And this is something in our day and age, we see all the people that are just, marriage is so loose to them. Okay, going to get married, and I've even heard people say, we're going to get married, and if it doesn't work, we'll just get divorced. Well, I can tell them one thing for sure. They will be getting divorced. If you're going to start out with the attitude that if it doesn't work, we're, we're going to get divorced, you will, 100% of the time, get divorced. Because the one thing I can tell you is, with, within five to eight years, you're going to hit that wall where you're not going to like each other because they're going to get on your nerves and the infatuation and feelings dwindle. All right? And this is why there's that period, you know, three to, three to eight years on most marriages end in divorce because people are going in with the wrong reason. God says, let no man pull it asunder. You know, if you're going, even when you go in with the attitude, I'm not going to get divorced because I'm going to live it God's way, you're going to hit that wall and it's going to be tough for you. 
because you're going to have to say, do I truly believe that God wants us to be forever, and did I get married for the right reason? When I give people counseling for marriage, now, I've been pastor now for going on five years, and I have not had one person go through my counseling and decide to get married. I usually scare them. No, I said they've not made it to my counseling. I scare them because I, I really talk about the seriousness of marriage. Plus the fact that I will only do an Arizona covenant marriage, which means they have to go through the counseling, and the only grounds to break that, that marriage is uh, adultery. It costs you less for the license and everything, but you cannot, get, you cannot break it without, without adultery. It's a, it's, a form of, it's a form of marriage in Arizona. You have a regular license, which is just like every other state. You can break it for any reason whatsoever, and then you've got a covenant, Arizona covenant marriage, which can only be broken by adultery. So I will, number one, most people won't come in because I'll only use an Arizona covenant marriage. And then I scare them because I talk about how serious marriage is in God's eye because we talk about what love truly is and, and that, that it's forever and what a husband's supposed to do and what a wife's supposed to do and, and what it means to be parents biblically. So I go through six weeks of counseling by, and nobody's gone through the whole six weeks of counseling. And if I never get, do a marriage, it's not going to hurt my feelings because if they're, if they're not willing to do it biblically, I don't want to be part of bringing the union together. It, I'm responsible before God as far as I'm concerned, so I want to make sure people fully understand the seriousness of it. I bet you most of the pastors are even not most. I don't know about most. All I know is about me. But I do know pastors that will just say, oh, you want to get married? Okay, we'll do it. And I'm not, I won't do that. I, to me, marriage is just so serious that I'm looking forward to the day when somebody says, yes, I want to go ahead and go through with this after the counseling because that marriage is going to last. <laughs> or, or should last, I mean... It definitely improves the odds. Going, going in, knowing, knowing what love is. You know, first part, just going in, knowing what love is. Because most people that get married are not in love with one another. They're infatuated or in lust. And infatuation and lust is why you hit the wall after three to eight years. Eight would be very long, but, that's, but if you're getting married because you're infatuated or in love, it takes, you a, it takes you a little while before you realize that your prince or princess isn't perfect. And then you, then you go, well, okay, we're going we're gonna to try to stick it out. And then there comes that day that you wake up and you look across the, you know, across the room. Who is this you know, in my bed with me and why, why are we together? And, and usually at that point, people say we're done or incompatible. And I've been sticking it out. You know, I haven't been in love with this person for a long time. I've been sticking it out. And divorce happens. But if you truly get married because you love one another, you've chosen to love, and, you know, and this is part of what I bring out, is we're looking to teach, you get married through objective love. What does that mean? Just like God's love. He chooses to love us. And if you choose to love somebody, then it's not feelings, it's not, do they make me feel good, do they look pretty, do they look handsome, or they, you know, do they have good manners, whatever, whatever you want to put in there. You know, lots of money, whatever it might be, you know, is not what you're looking at. You're looking at, I've chosen to love. How many people actually understand that? Very few. Most people quit. Most people quit my counseling when I even define love. Because I'm taking all the romance out of, their, out, of their, out of their thinking process. But it is true. A lot of times it's just 
I've chosen to love you and I'm going to stick with you because God says that that's what I'm to do. And then we get into the rest of it. But like I said, most of my people stop after my very first counseling with them because I talk about seriousness of love. Do you love? Actually, it's the second one because I ask them to think about why they love the person. Be ready to say why they love the person. Uh, but that's a very strong point. Because that's a serious episode for most people to go through. Why do you love this person? You know, because then they find out how superficial all their ideas of what love is all about. Well, the person is handsome or beautiful. Okay, so if they're in an accident tomorrow, you're not going to love them. And that shocks people because they don't, most people don't want to feel like I'm that superficial. You know, I, I don't really, you know, yes, that's probably what they really are saying, but they don't want to think that they're that superficial, that this person they're wanting to spend life with, you know, if they were in an accident and disfigured, that they would automatically say, no, I don't love this person anymore. And then they'll usually go to, well, I like their personality. Okay, again, they're in an accident tomorrow, a serious trauma of their head changes their personality, you're not going to love them anymore. That one's a little harder, because usually when we do get, if we're truly wanting to get married, it's usually if we're looking at any real reason, it's usually the personality that we want to marry more than, more than the look. So that's a little harder to, to, to get through. But again, if we're truly choosing to love that person, what are we really saying? And, I, and I've heard many stories of people that have been married a long time where uh, the husband has been working and the wife has a serious stroke or something and their personality completely changes and they stay together with them just because they do love them. But this is what all marriages is about anyway, because once you, go, once you make that union, you all of a sudden you're finding out things about people that you didn't know, especially if you've done it God's way and not lived together in the first place. But this, the really crazy thing about this is why do people live together is so that they can test the waters first, and then when they get married, they're more likely to get divorced than people who didn't live together. That, you know, they did it God's way. But see, the problem with all of this is, and the way the world thinks is, we're not going to commit until we're sure that it's going to work, and that doesn't work. That attitude doesn't work. We see on this, the world's point of view is, you know, try to make sure it's going to work before you commit, and God says, make the commitment that it's going to work. And this is the entire mentality of what goes in. Both have to agree, both have to, to be in agreement and change their thinking. And this is the, the funny thing about when we get into God's word. He changes the way we think. And listening to a pastor today, he goes, and I mentioned, I actually heard it two days ago. It's been the same message portion on there. He goes, wrong thinking will never lead to right action. Okay? And all the time, if we're not matching our thinking to God's way of thinking, we will never act correctly. Romans 12.2, be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind through the word. We conform our mind. We're not to conform to the world. As Christians, we need to be totally transformed. And that word for transformed in that verse is metamorphosis, which means to become something totally new, just as a caterpillar when it makes its cocoon is metamorphed into a butterfly. And if you've studied the science on that, the, the caterpillar gets inside that cocoon and it literally turns into a gelatinous <laughs> goo. The DNA is rewritten and a butterfly comes out with a new DNA. 
That's what God is telling us to be. Totally changed from the DNA of this world to a spiritual DNA. In our thinking, in our actions, in our behavior. How serious is God with that? Extremely. He wants a total change in his people. We are a new, never-before creation, according to Corinthians 5.17. You are a brand new creation, never before seen again, because we are not, we're no longer of this world, we are spiritual. How serious is God about this? Very serious. He wants us to be totally different from this world. And And how do we do that? Get into his word. Spend a lot of time meditating on his word. And not spending a lot of time on world's things. You know, and getting a little off track, but I want to just continue this. You know, we are, Paul's favorite description of himself was that he was a bond slave. And you know, we are crucified in Christ. Nevertheless, we live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life that I now live, I live according to the, to the Spirit. We are crucified. We are bond slaves. How many rights does a slave have? Uh, we don't think of that very often, but we are slaves to God. How many times do we catch ourselves saying, well, God, I don't want. The, the master doesn't care what the slave wants. <laughs> you know, the slave does not listen to the music that they want to. They listen to the music that the master's listening to. They do, this, they do the service that the master's asking. They, do, they, they follow the instructions of the master. And the master's not saying, okay, what do you want? What, what would you prefer? <laughs> God is the same way with us. He's not saying, what do you want? What do you prefer? How do you want to, how do, you want to do things? He goes, this is what I want. We need to be able to change our mindset. We are his servants. I don't have anything. I don't even have a life, really. I'm his servant. I'm his slave. I'm at his beck and call to do what he wants. Now, granted, God loves us enough that he's not going to say, okay, I'm going to make you do the thing you hate the most. Too many people believe that that's what God's going to do to them. Now, well, let's see, the worst thing you could possibly think you could be doing would be a sewer cleaner in Calcutta, so I'm going to send you there. That's not what God's looking to do. He's not going to say, okay, what, what's the worst thing you think could possibly happen to you? Have you ever heard somebody say, well, I'm not trusting God because I'm afraid he'll send me someplace I really don't want to go? He'll make me do something I don't want to do? Yeah. God is going to give you, if he's going to have you do something, he's going to give you the heart to desire to do it. One thing I've learned about it over the years is whatever God's asking me to do is what I want to do eventually. may not be when he first tells me, <laughs> but by the time I get around to doing it, it'll be what I want to do will match what he's asking me to do. When Jesus says, God says, one man, one woman for life, and, and he, he, when Jesus first says this, he leaves no room for divorce. You notice this? He's leaving no room for divorce. It says, what God has joined together, let no man pull asunder. So he's not really leaving room for, di- for divorce at all in that first start of that statement. All right, now we do know that we're going to get into this whole thing of, of what is a acceptable, but even that acceptable is not a mandatory reason for divorce. Okay, it is just what he says here. And he says, well, why did Moses command to write a bill of divorce? Okay, so their question is, well, Moses told us. Okay, you're going back to Genesis, but, you know, Moses, uh, you know, 1,800 years, 2,000 years later, told us that we could get divorced. Why did Moses do it? And Jesus' answer is very, 
in verse 8, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, <laughs> suffered you to write, uh, to put away your wives. From, but from the beginning, it was not. God, understanding the hardness of our hearts, gave us a out for divorce. Even then, it's almost grace. It's like a grace. But it's still not what he wants. Okay. All through the scriptures, God says, at one, one, and I wish I could remember where it was because I hadn't planned on saying it, but at one point God says to Israel, show me your bill of divorcement. I have not divorced you, and you're following after other gods, but I have not divorced you. Why are you following after other gods? Why are you committing adultery? God, by his own example, says, I'm not getting rid of Israel. No matter what they do, I'm not getting rid of Israel. Yeah, he's not agreeing to it. He's not going to allow it. So from his perspective, divorce still is not... Divorce is because we don't love enough. It's why he gives us the grounds for divorce. Because most of us don't love well enough to be able to accept. Hosea was a picture of, of God's love toward his people. God told him, go marry a prostitute. And four or five times he had to go buy her back because she kept going into prostitution selling herself into prostitution, and Hosea had to go back and buy her out of all the prostitution and clean her up and, and bring her back. And, it's, and God says, you are the picture of me with my love toward Israel. It's all, all the picture of this where he's told, told to go marry a prostitute who keeps going into, back into prostitution and running, leading him going back into prostitution. He'd have to go find her, basically buy her from her and bring her back to where she belonged. I think she took a lot of flat. Oh, I'm sure his mother and father were really excited about their, their good, their good uh, righteous uh, son going out and marrying a prostitute. They were probably going, and, you, and what God were you listening to at this uh, time? You know, I can picture the conversation. <laughs> but you know, so Jesus said, it was not so from the beginning. God only allows it because you are so hard-hearted. And even, even Paul later on says, you're allowed to do it, but it's not what's necessary. You don't, you're not mandated. Just because you're married to somebody who commits adultery, you're not mandated to divorce that person. Now, granted, it would be very hard to stay with them. All right? Especially if they don't, especially if they don't stop. Yeah. And they're, they're proving that they're not faithful. It would be very hard. Okay? But he says it wasn't that way from the beginning. God did not originally even allow it. But then he goes on and says something that really is something that is going to shock the disciples as they hear it. But I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except for fornication, so he gives, this, he gives the exception, and shall marry another, commits adultery, and whoso marries her, which is put away, does commit adultery. Now, I'm not sure you really have seen what I'm going to bring out on this. First off, he gives them, okay, you can put the person away for, for fornication, and literally the word here is pornia, any sexual inactivity, all right? And that's, uh, we won't go into this, but any, any sexual perversion outside the bonds of marriage is, he's saying, that they've committed. Do you know why the NIV left off the last portion of that verse? Which portion did they leave off? Well, then we're going to tell you why they left it off in just a second, because that's where I was headed. Anybody that commits fornication of any sort, any, any illicit sexual activity, he says, 
anyone that marry any man that marries uh, any woman that marries this man who's in that position is committed a uh, fornication, and any woman who has committed that activity has committed adultery. Jesus has elevated the place of woman through this statement. To the Jews, the man could do anything he wanted to the woman and remarry another woman with no problem. But Jesus says the woman who has had this happen to her has the same rights as the man. Jesus constantly elevated the position of women so far above the cultural norm. And it's a bizarre position I mean, because so many people in today's world say Christians are trying to downplay and, and put women in their place. In reality, it's Christianity that's lifted women up out of their subservient roles. In any place that has a Christian domination on it, which means most of Europe and America, women have a more freedoms, more, more rights. Go to any place that's not Christian dominated, any place that's Muslim or even any of the Asian religions, women are still property for all practical purposes. The man tell them what to do, their fathers tell them who they're going to marry and then what they're going to do with their life. Now there's some freedoms as westernization is kind of pushed in, but in their countries there's not that overall freedom. You know, Jesus raises up the women and says, hey, you know, guys, uh, if you were divorced, you couldn't do it. But, you know, by the way, if you marry the woman that, you, that somebody else divorced, that stigma holds to her, too. You know, she's not just a piece of property can be transferred amongst you guys and, and all of you have her anymore. It's like you marry her, you've committed adultery, you're committing adultery unless it was for fornication. And if it was for fornication, nobody wanted that person, especially in this day. Because there was a heavy stigma on fornication and adultery. You didn't just go out and sleep around. And if you did, you were a prostitute for all practical purposes and nobody wanted you. Well, do you know exactly what the translators had in mind when they originally looked at the, at the wording? One of two things. They saw it just as plain repetition and didn't think it was important. Which is possible. That's, that's putting the good spin on it. The other spin on it is that they were trying to take away the raising up of women. Now they will tell you that there was some version of it that probably didn't have it in there. If you look at the bottom of your of your page where it puts its little footnotes, it'll probably say some some earlier, you know, some later version did not have this in there, and I don't buy that one. I wonder what the original text actually says. I'm sure it said the two of them. I'm sure that the original said the two of them because it is it is outside the norm. It's outside of the Jesus' day, and it's outside of recent, until very recent, that women, women have really started receiving rights. So I, I would say it originally had both on there. And we see this whole thing, Jesus elevating women. You know, one of the things that tells us that the Bible is an absolute true story of the resurrection is who saw Jesus resurrected first were women. Now, in Jesus' day, a woman could not even, if she was the eyewitness to a crime, could not give testimony in court. And yet Jesus appears to women first and says, go tell the disciples. Now, if, if this was all made up, that would not be in the scriptures. Because the disciples would have said, we went there, we saw him, not, not women. 
because it makes no sense for them to write women saw him first and gave testimony because they weren't allowed to even give testimony. You know, everything about what Jesus has done is lifted up women. We see it even in, even in the Old Testament. We see women being lifted up. Now, it never really got fully in, into effect. But even in Deuteronomy, in, in Numbers, you read about the, the daughters of this man, and they had no sons. And they say, shall my father's family not get an inheritance because his, he has no sons? And Moses went to God, and God says, no, they should have, give him an inheritance. Now, we are going to put a restriction that they can't marry outside the tribe and lose their, lose their inheritance. But... They, they get inheritance. Women being lifted up, even in a day when they weren't being lifted up. God has always lifted up and elevated women. Why? From the very beginning, he says, I will make a helpmate for Adam. Not somebody to be stomped on, not a servant, but an equal to be one that helped him in all, in all aspects. How it turned down that Satan won all this and pushed women down into subservient roles is another story altogether. Are there roles? Absolutely. Even amongst the Father, Son, and the Spirit, there are roles. Jesus is submitted to the Father. The Holy Spirit is submitted to both of them. You know, and neither one of them, none, none of them look down on the other and say, well, you know, because you're submitting to the other, you're, you're, you're lesser. No, they're all equal. They're co-equal. But the Father has the say on what's going to be done. And if he says it, the other's subjected to it. Not because they're inferior, but just because they say we're going to be subject, subjected. In a good marriage, the husband has ultimate say. He's the one, and he's also the one that when, when the family stands before God, the, God's going to say, uh, husband, why did you do this? Now, uh, and if the wife stays submitted, she is protected by being submitted to the husband. And the greatest example of this is in the military. If you follow a legal order from a superior, even if it's the wrong thing to be doing, you're not going to be, theoretically, <laughs> prosecuted for doing what they told you to do, as long as you're not doing something illegal. You know, they told you to do something and you did it. The person who told you to do it is the one that will take the responsibility. A lawful, lawful order. Uh, but if they tell you to you know, uh, give you a, a lawful command and you follow it, the person who gave it to you is the one who is in trouble. Same principle in families. The husband, if the wife stays submitted to the husband, it's under an umbrella. So if, as long as it's illegal, you know, you know, he's not telling her to do something that's against the scriptures, and she stays submitted, she's covered. In a church, if people stay submitted to their pastor and the pastor goes off in the wrong direction in the church, they are covered because of the submission. In our government, if we stay submitted to our government who's given us lawful, non-scripture-violating you know, non rules, and we stay under them, we are covered even if it's a bad decision. And there's lots of bad decisions the government makes. All right? that they're not necessarily unscriptural or unlawful. If we stay submitted to them, we're covered from discipline. It doesn't mean not bad things are going to happen to us for the bad decisions that they make. So at some point with, with helpmate, you came up with a bad, bad definition of what that Human nature. Human nature. The judgment of the sin put the battle of there because he says, 
uh, the woman the woman is not going to want to have the man be the head, and the man is is going to try to domineer the woman. Part of the, part of the, part of the sinful nature and the fall of man. That's part of the curse. It's part of the curse. Uh, but it's also what God knew was be human nature. He knows that people want to rule. And this is part of the reason why submission is such a big issue with people. If I submit, that means I am not running my life I, and somebody else is running my life. But we're all submitted to somebody somewhere. Now, when we're driving down the highway, we're submitted to the speed limit sign to a lesser or greater degree depending on, your, on the person. Verse 10 through uh, 12. And his disciples said unto them, if the case of the man be so with his wife, it is not good to marry. Then he said unto them, All men cannot receive this saying, save to them whom it is given. For there is some eunuchs which were born so from their mother's womb, and there are some eunuchs which were made eunuchs of men, and they be eunuchs which have been made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. Okay, so here we're seeing... The disciples understand what Jesus said here, that the divorce, if you divorce somebody with, and fornication is not the right, that it is true of men and women. They see already that now women are being elevated. And again, this is a time when women have no rights. We've got to understand this. Jesus just said the woman and the man are equal in their position on this. Because they felt, you know, because they were being taught that you could divorce a woman and you could get married all the time you want and only the woman had the stigma attached to her and not the man. And so now he's saying, no, if you marry the woman, you have the same problem. <laughs> okay. And the disciples go, well, in that case, then, then we shouldn't even get married. If we can't just get rid of our wives when we want to, we just shouldn't get married. Yeah. Logical conclusion for, for somebody who's going to hold it to women or, or, or not worth anything. And, you've, and if you're not happy with them, you can get rid of them. Because you've got to understand here, Himel, uh, Hillel's thought process was the, the majority position for the men in Israel at this time. Okay? Divorce your wife for any reason. Which is why when the... Pharisees were coming to Jesus. They expected him, hope, they kind of thought he would go with the word of God, which would put him in opposition with the majority of the people. Because the men all like this idea. If I just get tired of my wife, I'll just get rid of her and get a, you know, a newer model, a newer model that will make me happy. And so here's the disciples like, well, gee, if this is true, then why should we get married at all? You know, I don't want to get married with the attitude of, one woman, one man, for life, forever. And this is what's going on in even our world today. People are getting married with the idea that if it doesn't work, it, we'll just get rid of it. Even Christian marriages are doing this. Now, if it just doesn't work, you know, we'll just get, start all over, you know, no big deal. And Jesus, and, here's, and the, this is the disciples saying basically the same thing. Well, if we just can't get rid of her, well, you know, you're telling us we have to make a decision for all of our life? then we just won't get married. Okay? And this is something that we're starting to see even in our day. How many, if you could talk to a lot of young people now, they've seen so much divorce, so many broken homes, so many things, that most of them say, I'm just not going to get married. We'll live together, we'll live in fornication, and when we get tired of each other, we'll just break up and go to the next one. 
we're living in a day of what they call serial monogamy. You know, one woman, one man at, at a time, and when you get tired of that one, go to another one. But you're only doing one at a time. You're still monogamous, but not by God's definition of monogamy. You know, uh, you know, cheating is cheating is forbidden. You know, but as long as you, when you get tired of them, you go, you just get rid of that one and go to another one. And some people are serial monogamy every night with a different person. <laughs> okay, but they're but they're absolutely convinced that they're monogamous because it's only one person at one time. And this is basically what the, the disciples are saying, you know, well, if it's going to be that big a deal, then we just won't get married. And Jesus kind of gives him an interesting answer. He says, all men cannot receive this saying. Basically, he's saying very few men can receive that saying because he's not going to put up with uh, fornication. He says, you know, most of, most of you guys aren't going to be able to go without a wife is what he's basically saying here. Because most of you can't receive this. He says, but he does say a few. A few are in that position. And there are a handful of people that have the whole, no desire to get married no, and, and no, no leanings toward the desires. I don't know how that happens, but there are. <laughs> and then Jesus says, there are some eunuchs from birth. And a eunuch is the keeper of the harem. And they were made eunuchs by castration. In other words, they had no desire, could not participate in this activity. So he's saying some are eunuchs that were born that way. They just, for whatever reason, have no desire whatsoever for sexual relationships. And I can tell you, I don't think I've ever met any guy, especially, that, that, that had no desire. I've seen some with very little, but I don't think I've ever met anybody who had no desire. <laughs> Um, but he says, there, there, there are some. Well, Jesus said it. I'll believe that, there are, that there's probably some. Uh, he goes, and there are some that were made eunuchs of men. And this is when the kings would, would make somebody their eunuch to watch their harem. They made sure that they could not take advantage of the harem. And, and then he says, and there are some that have made themselves eunuchs. They have just decided that they're not going to do it. And he goes, and they did this for the kingdom's sake. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. And Jesus said, if you can do it, go ahead. Paul's going to say the same thing later on. He goes, yeah, you, know, yeah. uh, you know, it is better to get married if, you're, if you can't, if you're going to, you know, yearn for it, get married. Otherwise, go ahead and, and stay unmarried. And there are great advantages in some ways to staying unmarried because, you know, as a husband and a father, I can't just pick up and go wherever God tells me to go on, you know, just because. You know, I could not just leave a job because I had family that needed the food on the table and, what, you know, and a roof over their head. So I would have to, they're always in the back of your mind. The family is important and you had to make decisions based for your family. Not that it's bad or good, it's just what it is. He's literally saying that these men castrated themselves? I don't know if the last ones were castrated on themselves or not. I, uh, because I think it may be that he's using eunuchs very loosely in this case. Somebody who's not having, having sex with, other peop with, other, with women. Um, and I don't know, I, I can't quite follow on this. The one in the middle definitely was made. They were castrated. No. No two ways about it.
but and the first one seems to indicate not necessarily actual castration, but they just were born with no desire. Okay, and again, I, Jesus said it, so I believe there must be a couple handful of people out there that are that way, but I've never met any. This gets you into people who are kind of like Paul was, where he does apparently he never remarried. And we know that Paul was married. And how do we know that he was married? Because he was part of the Sanhedrin. And you could not be part of the Sanhedrin without having been married. And so it is believed that his wife either died or most likely divorced her husband when he became a Christian. And it's probably that she divorced him. And because there's no indication that he had a marriage and a wife that he was dealing with as he did all these trips. How do we suppose that he lived the rest of his life? Probably under this third standard. He chose not to have relationships. But you can actually uh, do that with your mind rather, rather than actually doing the deed. Yeah, well, you can. You're, but I think in this case, he's saying there's some people that have just released themselves and have no desire for the sexual activity, no desire for having a woman in their life. There's just so much into whatever they're into, into God, into the ministry, whatever it might be. So in this, we're seeing three cases. Some people just were born with no desire whatsoever, and that's, Jesus said it, I'm going to accept that there are people like that. I've, I've never come across them, but in people that I know. Then he says some were made that way. Those are the ones that were literally castrated. And then he says others have chosen to be like that. And I think this is the verse where the Catholic Church took this whole idea that those who serve God, you know, the priests and, and nuns that choose to follow God have to follow in this follow this statement and this is probably where it comes from. I don't know that for sure but it's probably but I think here Jesus says there's very few that can actually receive this statement. Very few can live that lifestyle in male or female. And he's saying if you if you if you're called to do it, so much greater. Because there is a freedom to be single. If you can handle being single and that's what Paul said, there's a freedom in it. You know, you can get up and go, you can minister, God says go someplace, you don't have to worry about well, what is my family going to do? Or if I, if I go out to do this ministry every night of the week, you know, as a, as a husband, I cannot stay out every night of the week ministering for God. Yeah, but see, this is going beyond the thoughts. Jesus is saying not to have the thoughts. If you're, and Paul says the same thing. If you're being bothered by the thoughts, get married and, and yeah, be able yeah. to fulfill it. Paul said that if you can handle being single, it is better to be single. You're not, divide, you're not divided. Your, your mind is not divided. And I use myself as the example. I would love to minister seven days a week and, and not be working at the prison. But I take my time off and, I, and, I, and I'm with my wife at least two, day, two nights a week. I'm at my house. Why? Because I need to be home once in a while with my wife. If I was single, I'd be up here every day of the week and I wouldn't be at the, I wouldn't be at the prison because I wouldn't need the extra income because I could live on nothing. All right, we're going to close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this today. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come to look at you and just to show us the importance of marriage in, in your way. Lord, help us to be able to give good advice to our, our family members that ask about it and that you will see what you would have us to see from all of this and, and be able to counsel. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.